The Guardian. I'm Jonathan Friedland. In the United States, the Carter administration has become a byword for failure, used the way we speak of the major government in Britain. But as an ex-president, Jimmy Carter has flourished, engaging in good works the world over, whether mediating in intractable conflicts or working to eradicate hideous, neglected diseases. In 2002, he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Yet Carter isn't regarded as some consensual humanitarian, but remains a deeply controversial figure. When I interviewed the former president, I began by asking him whether he accepted the conventional wisdom, that he was a better ex-president than president. Well, I can't deny that, but the success is in different fields. You know, when I was president, um, we initiated some important steps. Some of them revolutionary in nature. Uh, For instance, we established human rights as a basic foundation of our foreign policy. Whereas in the past, our government had been in bed with every dictator on earth if they would support our economic framework. More than two-thirds of the Latin American governments were military dictatorships when I became president. Now they're all democracies. And I think that human rights implanted in their hearts and minds made, that, made some difference in that. We brought peace to the Middle East between Israel and Egypt, at least. Uh, we normalized diplomatic relations with China. Uh, we promoted uh, an end to apartheid in, in some parts of Africa. And we told the truth, <laughs> kept our country at peace. We never dropped a bomb, we never fired a bullet, we never launched a missile. So some of the things we did in, in office were good. Subsequently, though, I've, I've functioned pleasantly without any authority. I don't have any authority at all. I don't have any legal status. I, I just had what was originally one other person in me at the Carter Center. Now we have about 150 people. So well, What you have is moral authority. I do have moral authority as long as I don't destroy it. Mm. it, it's, it but, you know, that, that's something that you have that can easily be lost. I mean, I was reading your Beyond the White House book and the yeah. degree of effort and energy you're putting in and some of the stuff that isn't controversial, you yeah. know, guinea worm and all the fighting disease, etc. And That's I was right. thinking that there you are now in your 80s and your predecessors as ex-presidents by now were on the golf course. In fact, quite literally on the golf yeah. course in oh. Ford's case and Bush Sr.'s case. And, 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 and wondering what it is that might drive you to still be so active, travelling, etc., I mean, it's a liberty for me to say this, but given your oh. faith, whether some extent to which you felt a need to redeem the, pre- the, the, the presidency you'd had, given perhaps how, not, now, I, I know the defense you've made of it, but how other people saw it. I don't it? have that feeling at all. What I decided to do after searching, following my White House years, was to establish an organization that could fill vacuums in the world. And I decided quite early, and, and we've never deviated from this, that if there was some important function being carried out by the United Nations or the World Health Organization or the U.S. government or Harvard University or whatever, that we wouldn't do it, that we would just try to, to take care of things that others were ignoring, and that's what we've done. And so almost everything that we have done has been uh, in that category. Uh, when I've been to, say, North Korea to end a nuclear threat or when I went to Haiti to, to prevent a war, mm-hmm. when I started working on guinea worm, which was a totally neglected disease, or four other neglected diseases, all of them officially categorized as such by the World Health Organization. It was because no one else wanted to work on them, and, and, they were, and there was a great need there. 
We initiated, the Carter Center did, the, the program that's now quite prevalent around the world of monitoring elections. Mm. We, we did the first one in Panama, then we did another one in Nicaragua, and now we've just finished our 70th one. In Nepal, as you mentioned. In Nepal. Mm. Well, we have found a, a plethora of, uh, of needs for someone or some organization to attempt to improve a bad situation, and that's what we've done. Uh, and nobody would dispute the need that's there. What's yeah. interesting is that your predecessors, as former incumbents, occupants of the White House, yeah. haven't felt that they should be the person to meet that need. Well, that's They've, true. as I said, gone to the golf course. And I'm trying to get out and explain to our readers what it might well, be that makes you think this is something you ought to do. John Kennedy didn't survive, and, and Lyndon Johnson didn't survive long. Truman was very a very parochial person. He went back home to his presidential library and stayed there. Uh, others have wanted to make a lot of money which I don't criticize. They, they make enormous sums of money, uh, which has been recently revealed by, by one of the former presidents. But anyway, that, uh, that doesn't appeal to me. When I was first defeated in the White House, in, in a somewhat weak moment, I told mm. the news media that I was not going to uh, go on a lecture circuit. I was not going to yeah. serve on corporate boards. Later, kind of wished I hadn't said that. Because you've stuck to that, that self-denying ordinance ever since. I don't don't consider it self-denying because I I make a lot of money uh, on my book sales. I've just finished my 25th book. They've all done quite well. They've sold hundreds of thousands of copies. So I have a good income from that. But but what I do now, I don't consider it to be a sacrifice at all. It's not that I'm giving up something to go to Nepal or giving up something to go over and talk to Hamas, or giving up something to do this and that. I, I, I don't consider that a sacrifice. You know, it, to me, it's a, it's exciting and challenging and and uh, unpredictable and adventurous and gratifying. It, it's, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a nice thing to do. And you also made the point when you retired that you were younger than most ex-presidents, and you had a lot of life to still to, to live. But the, I suppose the way, another way of putting it would be, yeah. do you imagine if you had been re-elected in 1980 and had retired after two terms in 1984, yeah. do you imagine you'd have done this kind of work? I don't think so. I've thought about that a good bit. I think had I had a, two full terms, uh, I don't think I would have. But but that's a somewhat presumptuous um, opinion, because I think that, that had I had another term, that peace in the Middle East, for instance, would have been permanent, mm. which may be a daydream. That's my honest opinion, and you asked me for my opinion. So, so your sense of why you perhaps wouldn't have done all this work if you'd had two terms is because in some ways some of the work you're doing now with the Carter Center would have been done in it your second done. term. I think so. But do you think it would also have been a slightly more personal thing that you'd have felt in a way that you didn't have, uh, you, were, you were fully fulfilled, you didn't have this sort no. of reputation to you secure? Keep, no, you keep bringing it up. I, I, do, don't, yeah. I don't agree with that, and neither does my wife. I honestly don't have that feeling at all. So instead, the reason why you think that perhaps you wouldn't have done it in 1984 is because much of that work would have been done. Yeah, on the international <clears throat> scene like that, yes. Yeah. I wouldn't have been quite 60 years old when I left, mm. left the uh, White House under that second term. I was 56 when I got out this term, mm. uh, almost. And um, I think it, it, it's certainly possible that we would have gotten involved in the health field. Afterwards? Yes. Yes. Because there's a tremendous vacuum there. And yes. we, we might very well have gotten involved in promoting human rights because there would still have been a vacuum there. And, and we have trained 8 million 
farmers in Africa who have a tiny portion of land to grow more food grain. And mm-hmm. that, that's the kind of thing that would probably have appealed to me because I'm still a farmer today. So, you know, there, there may have been those humanitarian things that it would have been challenging. But perhaps the Middle East would have been something you could have, have left so. because you'd have... Who knows? You may have completed the mission. Yeah. So As I speak. said, that may be presumptive. No, but it's a, it's a good thought. Let's talk about the Middle East a bit anyway. Um, uh, your recent trip, uh, I was in the region when you were, actually. Oh, were you? Uh, yeah, yeah, I was uh, in, uh, in Israel okay. um, and uh, the Palestinian territories as well for a bit. That's when good. you uh, come back from your mission, and mm. I was very struck by the line in the Haaretz editorial saying that you should be treated as royalty every time you come to the Middle East you, simply you, because of the Israel-Egypt. No, I was very struck by it. Oh, it was struck. a great I'm line. I must say shocked. No, okay. absolutely not struck. I thought, <laughs> right. uh, not shocked. I thought you wholly deserved that because uh. the point is because of what you did with Israel-Egypt and Camp David. So I, I just wanted to... Um, that's good. Remind you of that line because I thought it was a very good line. But the uh, other point was that um, whether you had seen in your meetings, either in Damascus with the current Syrian leadership or with Hamas, did you at any point see in those people that you met what you did see in Anwar Sadat 30 plus years earlier? I didn't see it, but I saw the potential of it. You know, who knows? The, the head of Hamas, Michel, is a, is a physicist. Highly educated, obviously shrewd politically, since they orchestrated a very successful uh, political campaign with a glorious victory uh, in 2006. The deputy head of the Politburo is a cardiologist, Hmm. distinguished in his field. In fact, he had been invited over to the United States earlier to, to give a lecture at a medical assembly. And while he was over there, he was accused by the Israelis and others of, uh, of channeling money to terrorists. So he was arrested in New York, mm. and he was kept in prison for two years and eventually released without any evidence against him. So the, the point I'm making is that, you know, you have physicists and medical doctors and others mm who uh, have also shown political acumen and, and competence and boldness. So, so I think that they do have within them the capability, if they see that it's to the advantage of the people that they lead, to make a, an option of peace. I suppose what I was thinking about was not necessarily the capacity, because yeah. I'm sure that everyone yeah. would agree with you on that, more that the, the sense of decision. What you saw in Sadat yeah. was that he was a man who'd come to terms with and had decided yeah. the path of peace. But he, see, do, you, yeah. do you feel you saw that in Bashar al-Assad? Did you see that in, in um, Khaled Mashal of Hamas? I think the biggest surprise on the whole trip was the um, obvious intelligence and competence and strength of um, of of President Assad mm. because we had heard just the opposite mm. Rosen and I have known him ever since he was a college student uh, he was studying to be an ophthalmologist mm. in London, in London yeah. that's where he met his wife and he was completely in charge of, of that group of, uh, of Syrian leaders some are much more senior in age than him um, and, he, and he didn't have to defer to any of his subordinates to answer some of the most uh, intricate questions that, that I could put to him. So anyway, that, mm. that was a pleasant surprise. So I think he's capable in his own person of, of consummating an agreement. Hamas, I don't know. You know, my presumption is that Hamas is doing <clears throat> what they think is best for the Palestinian people whom they represent. And they made a, a uh, seminal departure 
from their previous philosophy and those of the more radical members of the Islamic faith when they decided to run for democratic office. Mm. Uh, and they were condemned for it. We were over there in, in, in the early and middle 2005 when they had refused in the past to run for a parliamentary seat, but they ran for municipal seats. And, and they won about 35% of the cities and towns in Palestine. And they, and they administered the affairs of those cities superbly. And it was primarily because of that proven track record mm. among the people that saw them every day that they were able to prevail in the parliamentary mm. election. So that they, they are willing to participate in, in a democratic process and I think to accept the results of the process. Because when they got into that 2006 race, they did not anticipate a victory. They were surprised too. But the um, criticisms that were running in the Israeli press, unlike the mm-hmm. royalty line, was That's that you were too easily pleased, if and people said naive or gullible, that you accepted what Hamas said. Uh, and that what they point well, to is, and you've just addressed the issue of the charter, you know, with its very anti-Semitic sure. language and imagery. It's but there's terrible. this, yeah. and the suggestion that they are quite good at saying one thing and then back at the mosque in Friday yeah. prayers in Arabic saying something else. Do you believe you sensed a sort of in the gut conversion of those Hamas leaders to the path of recognition of Israel and peace, rather than just a sort of tactical shift? I do, but I may be naive and I may be mistaken. We we presented our six proposals from me. And they argued or debated with me, and and not in an ugly way, for probably four hours. And then I I left Dr. Pastor and and another man that represents the Curtis Center, and Stephen Solar is there, and I went to get some rest. They continued on until early morning hours. Then we had to leave Damascus and go to Saudi Arabia. Then they called in the Hamas leaders out of Gaza to Cairo, and, and they, pro- they provided them transportation to Damascus. So, so the conglomerate mm-hmm. leadership of Hamas assembled all during Sunday and, and until after midnight Sunday night. And then they gave me their answers uh, early in the, in the night Monday morning. So they were carefully considered answers. And I interpreted their commitments to me to be easily provable. One was whether they would accept any agreement that was negotiated. The other one was to depart from their long position of of not separating Gaza from, from the West Bank on a ceasefire. They agreed with me. And they made it clear to me they would accept a ceasefire just for Gaza. And you can reassure Israelis, can you, that that wouldn't just be used as a pause to rearm, but would be somehow a genuine move towards peace? No, I can't assure. I, I don't have that control. But the Egyptians do. The Egyptians have total control of the border. I think that uh, that's why, one reason why Israel is at ease, or more at ease, uh, in having Egypt involved in the process. You, you mentioned, um, we've, we've talked about the charter before. How, did you raise it with them? How, how troubled are you by the I, I anti-Semitism of Hamas in their charter? I, I despise anti-Semitism in anyone. 
I grew up with it in the South with, with anti-black. Mm. I, when I was a child, I had no white neighbors. All my neighbors were black, and I saw the ravages uh, for racial discrimination. And so I, I hate that. And I, and I there, there certainly are some some Jews who look on all Palestinians as terrorists, and and who have no compassion for a, a Palestinian child who's killed. Mm. That that they are a, a tiny minority. There, there's some. Uh, uh, Muslims who have the same feeling about Jews. And some of that's in that Hamas charter. Yeah, some of that's in that Hamas charter. It's, it's an ancient charter. And, but uh, when S- S- Cong- Congressman Stephen Solos brought up that charter, they just ridiculed it as being an, an ancient, you know, passe, inconsequential in, in document. Uh, earlier before you mentioned the um, supine attitude of the European Union, yeah. would you call on the European Union to break from the policy that Israel and the United yes. States maintain? Absolutely. Absolutely. Why not? I mean, they're not, they're not our fat vassals. They occupy an equal position with us in the, in the uh, international quartet. And so what should they do, the European Union? I, I would... They, they may do what they're already doing. They may have decided on their own that it's perfectly legitimate to imprison one and a half million people and, and punish them horribly because they have living among them people that ran for public office and were elected in a democratic election. Mm. I mean, if that's, if that's their rationale, so be it. But that's what they're doing. Or they could say, why don't we reassess this? Why don't we say that if Hamas pledges to us, we are ready to have a ceasefire in Gaza. We will not launch any more rockets if Israel will agree not to attack us again. Let the Europeans on their own. Uh, lift that embargo. Lift the embargo and, and, and go there and, and say, okay, we'll, we'll protect the rights of the, of the Palestinians that live in, in Gaza. We'll even send some, some observers there to the Rafah Gate and make sure that, that uh, they don't violate it. So, in other words, the conditions should not be those three conditions that have been set by the international community, not, but instead should be agree to a ceasefire in Gaza, and then we cer- would lift our embargo. Certainly not those three <clears throat> conditions as a prerequisite to talking to them sure. or negotiating with them for peace. The notion that nothing is going to change until the United States leans on Israel, and rather than just allowing Israel to do whatever it always wants to do. Given the real world of American politics, how do you imagine that actually coming about and happening? Let me tell you how it could have come about a few days ago, when President George W. Bush stood up in front of the Knesset. Hmm. He could have said, the United States is totally committed to the security of Israel. We'll give you everything you need to defend yourself. But you have got to withdraw your settlers from the West Bank. And you have got to have, give the Palestinians a right to live a decent life. And you've got to let them have a contiguous state in which to develop their own government. And you have got to comply without any further delay to the basic terms of the roadmap. That's what he could have said. And he didn't say that. And what he actually said was anyone who talks to those kinds of groups, American politicians, Democrats, he said, who would talk to Hamas. American well, Democrats. I think, he said, <clears throat> I think he said there are Democratic politicians who, would, who are like appeasers for wanting to I didn't talk hear. to the Iranians. Maybe he said that. What, do you, what do you feel about him having said that? Because people took it as an attack on Obama. Some even perhaps thought it might be directed your way. What do you think? Well, you know, there <clears throat> have been a very notable... Uh, 
editorials written by the editors of the New York Times and Washington Post saying that he was attacking Israel because Bush knew that day mm. that Israel was already negotiating with, uh, with Syria through the Turks. He knew that. And, and, the, uh, and yet he said those words. So you, yeah. So it was perhaps now an attack I'm, on I'm Israel. Not, that's, that's not my quote. But that's from the top newspapers in America. And do you think that's plausible? I don't know. It's plausible. You know, I'm not saying it's true because I don't know what was inside the president's mind. I, I, want, I want to talk about uh, American politics, and this is a way, and one thing we're doing at Hay that we're getting for The Guardian is asking other speakers to ask other authors here a question. So well, there's one for you from the bishop, Gene Robinson. Uh, Reverend Gene Robinson is the bishop, I think, in New Hampshire. I may be wrong about that. That's right. You know the man I mean. Anyway, his question to you was, what effect might there be on, on the world stage with the possible election of Senator Barack Obama as president? Would his election signal a new United States approach in the world and therefore a change in the way America is perceived in the world? In my opinion, the election of any one of the remaining three candidates would provide yes to that, to that question. And you're, you're indifferent between the no, three. No, I didn't say that. I said any one of the three... Would be an improvement on where we are now. And would change the basic policies of the United States in many ways. One that's very uh, important to me is uh, torture and the violation of the Geneva Conventions and the abandonment of uh, being a champion of human rights. Another change would be a, a restoration of the leadership of America in the field of uh, environmental quality and protection from global warming. Uh, those would be brought about by any one of the three candidates. Mm. A number of others, though, would be brought about by the Democratic candidates, which are very important to me also. I wouldn't mm. say more important. I think it's important for us to get out of Iraq. And I spelled out my, my uh, opinion in there. My opinion is that inherently, uh, John McCain is a more warlike leader than George W. Bush. Uh, he has even said in an offhand but I think sincere way that the American troops may be there 100 years from now. Mm. I don't think Bush has gone that far. And I don't think that, that President Bush has taken any step in going into Iraq or staying there or in, increasing the number of our troops where McCain didn't say he should have done more. You were elected, uh, Clinton was elected, Bill Clinton, uh, Lyndon Johnson before that. Do you think if Obama is the nominee, he ought to think very hard about putting a straightforwardly a Southern Democrat, probably a Southern white Democrat, on the ticket with him? Well, I'm the only Democrat since Lyndon Johnson that, that ever got a majority of the votes. Mm. Clinton did. But you got a plurality but not a majority. I got a majority. Yeah. And uh, Johnson completely disavowed his Southern roots. He denied that he was a Southerner. He never campaigned one day in my state. Hmm. or Alabama, or Mississippi, or Louisiana. He characterized himself as a Southwesterner. And he deliberately gave those four states that I mentioned to you to Barry Goldwater. Hmm. And Barry Goldwater carried those four states plus his own home state of Arizona. So I was the first person from the Deep South in 130 years that was elected president. And it was because of a remnants of the race issue. But I disavowed that. No need, I need not go into detail about it. But anyhow, uh, 
That's still an incipient problem in the South, uh, the resurrection of the race issue. And, and to see Obama overcome that and do so well in South Carolina and North Carolina and Georgia, he carried my hometown of Plains. But to cement that in a general election, do you think he needs a, a, a Southerner on the ticket or is it not? The answer is no. I think what he needs more than a Southerner is a, is a person who, who can compensate for his obvious Potential, uh, potential defects, uh, his youthfulness and his lack of long experience in international and, and military affairs. So I would say if I had my preference, I would choose former Senator Sam Nunn. Mm. He's from Georgia, who's my friend. Mm. Uh, I was with him this week. Have you said that publicly before? Yes, I oh, have. Yeah. Okay. I have. I wondered how excited to get. Well, <laughs> but, but that would be my preference. Yes. But, but there are other... You know, senior Democrats uh, who would have similar uh, credentials to Sam Nunn. Sam Nunn was was the expert above everybody else in the Senate for 20 years yes. on, on military control, affairs, yes, on control. And so where are you on the so-called dream ticket uh, of Hillary and Obama oh, as a healing mechanism after this? Race? I think it'd be the worst mistake that could be made. I'm on the outside. I'm not involved in the internal affairs of the Democratic Party at all. But I think that would just accumulate the the negative aspects of both candidates. How? How so? Well, there are a remnant of voters, a pretty substantial, that because of Bill Clinton's elements of unpopularity, I have been against Hillary. It shows up in all the public opinion polls. I think her negatives are about 50%. Yeah, very high, yes. So if you take that 50% who just don't want to vote for Clinton uh, and add it to whatever element they might be that don't think Obama is white enough or old enough or experienced enough or because he's got a, a middle name that sounds Arab... You could have the worst of both worlds. You could have the worst of both, worth of, worst of both worlds. And I don't. Th- if she should have gotten or should get the nomination, uh, I don't think that it would be good for her to bring him in either. For the same reason. For the same reason. Uh, you mentioned um, the, the the legacy or the leftover effect of him, yeah. uh, Bill Clinton, and I'm just wondering. But, but as no, a, there are a lot of good aspects that he left. Absolutely too. right. But his but his it, role in this campaign, a lot of people have wondered about that. People understand why yeah, he had to campaign for his wife, but the nature of it, the thing, the buttons he's been pressing, hurt. has not been appropriate for a former president. What do you think about that? I think it has hurt him. Uh, in the public opinion polls, as indicated by some that I have actually seen, and also by the editorial comments, even among uh, editorialists who in the past have been fervently pro-Clinton, I think they have interpreted some of his remarks as being subtly uh, of a racial nature. Mm. One that's been singled out is when he uh, equated Obama with Jesse Jackson, I believe in the South Carolina primary. The next day, Bill Clinton called me on the phone, and he told me that that was not his intention, and I believed him. Uh, I, I don't think mm. that he 